I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, a psychoanalyst who lives in Sweden and works internationally, and this is episode 231 of Rendering Unconscious Podcast. Joining me today are Drs. Patricia Garavici and Manya Steinkohler. They're here to talk about their new book, Psychoanalysis, Gender, and Sexualities, From Feminism to Trans. Rendering Unconscious is also a book, Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry, available from Trapar Books. Visit the publisher's website, trapar.net, that's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. Thank you so much to our Patreon community. Your support is so greatly appreciated. As usual, there is a video of this discussion available at YouTube. Just visit Trapar Films' YouTube page. Manya and Patricia, I'm so excited to have you here to talk about your new book. It is an amazing accomplishment. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having us, Vanessa. Thank you, Vanessa. It's a great pleasure to have the opportunity to meet again and talk about this new book. Yeah, so how would you like to start? Do you want to talk about how the book came to be? or? Well, we were going to start by talking about love because everything comes to be when we talk about love, right? That's how things come to be. Um, we were uh, we were originally going to do this on Valentine's Day and for mm-hmm. reasons we couldn't. So um, we were... Uh, now it's a kind of pretend Valentine's Day, so we're going to have, and which and pretends has to do with love as well. So we're going to start with that idea in our book, Patricia. And also the temporality that maybe the unconscious knows doesn't know about chronological time. It's a logical time Valentine's. of the unconscious. So every day can be Valentine's, Valentine's Day. day. Right. So that, or that spirit. With that spirit, it's never Valentine's Day. Exactly. <laughs> no, that's it. We could declare that no day will ever be Valentine's Day. Right. right. And the idea, well, you know, if the woman does not exist and the other does not exist and the sexual relation does not exist, wait. And But yet there's still Valentine's Day. And that's why we're going to start with love. <laughs> right. So uh, we were going to start with, because of the Valentine's Day idea, we were going to start with thinking about love. You know, because we're going to think about love, gender, sexuality, um, and psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. Um, Patricia, do you want to start? Yes. Uh, okay. Our point uh, of departure to uh, a little discussion on the theme of, of love, which is one of the the issues approaching in this book that uh, puts psychoanalysis in dialogue with other disciplines. It's a, very interdisciplinary book and what we try to do is uh, to introduce a conversation which I think is when, whenever one starts uh, thinking about love, words are needed, uh, conversations open up in the context of certain statements that circulate around psychoanalysis. Uh, one uh, could be Lacan's dictum, uh, this, there is not such a thing as a sexual relation, that the sexual relation does not exist. Uh, and perhaps, even though people 
may have sex, encounter between bodies may occur, uh, perhaps we need love to make that inexistence more tolerable. Uh, and, and one thing that is important to keep in mind when we're talking about love, what do psychoanalysts uh, talk about when they talk about love, mm -hmm. is that love concerns the very being of the other, that in love we are not limited to the narcissistic trappings of image. If we take the metaphor of Plato's cave's walls, we accept the love other in their being. We love them as they are. And, uh, and uh, we may say that there is always, of course, a release of tension achieved by the sexual act. This discharge evokes emptiness and is expressed by Galen's famous uh, phrase, post-coitum omne animalu triste est, that after the sexual union, the human animal is sad. And, and that loving tenderness after sex would engage the other person's subjectivity because it's addressed to the other being that we could say that in this post-sex embrace, the discrepancy of the meeting of the bodies is unceremoniously unmasked. One's arm falls asleep, one's foot cramps, one is unable to sleep, travel by the snoring of the other. That one tolerated love not only makes up for these uh, unavoidable awkward moments, but is not perturbed by the disappointment the negativity encounter at the core of sex. I don't know, Mania, if you would like to, to add something. Um, do, do, we want, do we want to go on to discuss sexuality versus identity? In the but maybe I was going to ask you, of, what do you think yeah. is the difference between transference and love? Mm -hmm. Well, it, it, there wouldn't be any difference because, uh, as we know, often uh, transference is addressed through the axis of love, that love, but love understood in a very peculiar way, the way uh, that Lacan offers uh, an original reading of transference is no love in the sense of a sort of uh, replica of an early love attachment. You will love your analyst as you love your mother or hate your analyst as you felt hated by your dad. It's not a sort of reproduction. It's not steroxine early relationships, but rather is a, an unavoidable consequence of a superstition, a superstition of a knowledge that would be the basis, the starting point that hopefully get the treatment started and um, a position of being the loved one, the one to whom a certain knowledge is ascribed. And hopefully that person, the analyst, would fall from that position and become more of an object cause of desire and eventually being let go of that. If we think that an analysis is the start, a medium and leads to an ending that has to be considered from the very start. Otherwise, we could not get the treatment started if we are not aware that it has to end. Then the analyst will fall from that transferential position, that ascription of knowledge, to uh, be fulfilling the destiny of any object A, which is to let it fall, let it go off. And maybe there's a distinction between the way we attribute the object A to the lover 
mm-hmm. a distinction to be made. And see, in, in the analysis, we it, it allows us to think, it allows the unconscious to produce and develop and m- make what for, Lacan will call the formations of the unconscious in the treatment, whether it's new symptoms, new developments of the symptom, whereas the idea in the other, they're kind of sustaining they're kind of sustaining a fantasy, which has an, a, a sense of stasis in it, which the analysis allows to move. So that would be a kind mm-hmm. of distinction between the two. If that... But also that is not specific to the analytic encounter. Probably uh, anyone who teaches has encountered transference. And I think uh, good teachers make productive use of that transferential bone uh, that uh, in any situation where there is an ascription of a supposition of knowledge or a supposition of a subject of knowledge, there will be transference. But as uh, Manya was saying, that the advantage you have is that the setup of analysis would pro- provide with a frame to overcome that fantasy and mm, mm, give to the analysis probably more agency uh, at, the, at the end of the, the, the process of analysis in regards to this transferential bond. Or we could also say like it makes the, uh, if the object falls, it makes desire. You know? Makes room for desire, absolutely. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We, I don't know how much room for desire is nowadays in classrooms, <laughs> but that, but I thought- Even in analysis, in, right? Even in analysis, you know? In, even in analysis, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, that's, I think, maybe one of the objectives of the collection, to, to make room for desire to flow, to create desiring connections, uh, to create more desire to learn, to know, to push uh, uh, ideas further. And also, we, we use the expression in the introduction, a cross-pollination between fields. It's not that psychoanalysis would apply an expertise on fields that lack it, but rather the possibility of, of an exchange dif- between different uh, forms of production of knowledge right. and it's truth to, as well. Yeah. To put like feminism, uh, trans, uh, trans discourse, uh, gender studies, psychoanalysis, and make them all like in the same room and make in the same book and make them all talk to each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Something, something like that. Right. And to have, to have that, conversation they're already in the the book shows how much those discourses are already informed by each other the introduction has a long historical passage where we really do the footwork to show the building of how different discourses influenced each other over time and so that one might think for example uh, if one you know maybe one is not so aware of how much there has been a cross pollination of these discourses, and they're they're not they're they they should not be like antagonistic because they're actually made of each other. So that's one of the things that the book helps sh- both show and then produce in the various chapters that we have. Yeah, absolutely. I was just going to say how amazing the introduction is and that kind of history that you walk uh, the reader through. It's really fantastic. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that in a way the, the, there is a, a a combination that maybe they even though there there are differences between the discourses, right. there is a, a a lot of productive maybe confrontation uh, and uh, one thing that it is obvious today that we cannot talk about uh, sex 
gender, sexuality, without even if we, for somebody who may hate psychoanalysis and, and want to debunk his uh, uh, theories, uh, nevertheless, even in colloquial use, we, you, we cannot address uh, sex, gender, sexuality without using a psychoanalytic vocabulary. And this connection is not just a coincidence, there is a foundational connection that dates back to the early days of psychoanalysis. That we show so, in the book. Yeah, we show in the book, and yeah. And, we, and some of the essays work on as well. So it, yeah, it's but maybe we could do that, Mania. What do you think about perhaps uh, sharing with, with you, with whoever still listening to this uh, podcast, to uh, tell you a little more about what is the book? Because the book is, is a wonderful book. We are very proud of it. Thanks to the amazing uh, contribution we have, we managed to, to bring together uh, a very rich combination of contributors and, and a big thank you to, to all the authors that had made the book possible. And, and, and we were really uh, honored and blessed with having amazing uh, contributions, very strong chapter that in, in we're able to confirm this, this uh, initiative that we had. So maybe we could go rapidly through, tell you what, what is the book about, but simply mentioning what the chapters are about. So well, do you think about that? Yeah, that's a good idea. Let's do that. Um, so we were talking precisely about the object A and, and what causes uh, uh, desire and, uh, and uh, we are, by definition of speaking, being structurally lacking, but that, that lack uh, is a uh, salutatory, right? In way we, that in a way, the fact that we are lacking allows for desire to exist. And, um, and uh, one important thing to keep in mind is that uh, that object that causes desire uh, is uh, an object that the, uh, we'll go back to Freud, Freud proposed in the three essays that the object of desire is uh, contingent. The only object of the drive is satisfaction, that we propose that the object of the drive is engendered. And, uh, and in a way, we see already in the early days of psychoanalysis, I'm talking about the three essays, 1905, we have the possibility of a, a, a type of reading of psychoanalysis uh, that holds uh, a lot of future for uh, any further theorization in gender studies and sexuality because it is uh, democratic, it is ungendered, it is not heterosexist, and it is not normative. And this is something that we could also see in Lacan's rereading of Freud, that, that the notion of Lacan of the object A um, has indeed a lot of promise in terms of not being determined by, by gender. Right. In that sense, like if we're thinking, I'm thinking about our first, the first chapter in the book, right? That it's yes. not even, even if we're, we're talking about like, even if we, we touch just briefly on gender pronouns, right? There's the famous they, right? And the, the, mm -hmm. the question of who, who, right? Who are we going to bed with? Let's stay on the, our love and sex idea, right? And uh, our very exciting uh, we both think it is. First essay uh, by Tim Dean is is um, is called Freud's Menage à Quatre, right? And 
through this, he thinks about uh, the, and, and it's, it's looking back to Freud's idea of like how, how many people are in bed, right? And the essay thinks through the difficulty of sex, challenging and dispelling certain of our assumptions about it. First, like the obvious one that would be, people wouldn't think twice about that, it, there are only two people in bed, right? Uh, and um, so maybe, maybe, like, so each idea, there are only two people in bed, what is sex? Uh, all of those get to be rethought in Dean's essay. Um, so uh, maybe our confidence in when we think we know what we're talking about regarding sex or even how many people are in bed uh, is, 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 is a, a kind of ruse that like allows us to think we know what we're talking about. Um, because the, the idea is like, you know, Freud had m mentioned that there are at least four people in bed. Right. And, you know, as we, who, who are we having, who are we having sex with? Who's there? You know, so, so he will work through that in that essay in a really delightful and very witty and very clever and very revealing way. Yeah, simple arithmetic doesn't work in terms of sexuality in a couple, in a coupling of two, we have, according to, to Freud, at least uh, four people. And, and, and uh, we may see if we uh, follow Freud's idea of sexuality being polymorphous, uh, we have uh, already a conceptual impossibility uh, of maintaining any binary category, any conception, uh, all other assumptions, heteronormative assumptions about sex or even the certitude of what is sex about without any um, gender prescription need to be rethought and questioned. And, and uh, uh, we think our uh, prescriptions and descriptions uh, about sex uh, as uh, at least symptomatic, that uh, in a way what uh, this uh, first chapter by Tim Dean is uh, to put those uh, enigmas at the heart of sex into a, a productive, uh, a con exploiting the, 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 the contradictions. And, uh, and I won't say more, I will leave you with intrigue, Re read it because it's uh, interesting, it's a, a wonderful antidote to all this bombardment we have every day uh, from um, self-help books to the Kama Sutra that the assumption is if we could only do it right, sex would not be a problem. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and uh, already the history of psychoanalysis derives from um, problems, symptoms for which medicine could not offer any answer that had at the core, according to Freud, a sexual origin and the talking cure, psychoanalysis, was invented by uh, addressing this mysterious link between psyche and body and through the hysterical uh, body, body in pain and suffering that reveal more uh, fidelity to language than to anatomy. And a body that could be cured, uh, relieved of pain by the effect of words. And, and here we would lead to what is our, our second uh, chapter in the collection, Glossa and Counterwill, the perverse tongue of psychoanalysis. And I would leave it to, to Mania to describe Elisa's Marder, wonderful second chapter in, in our collection. Elisa Marder does a kind of counter reading of one of the pre-psychoanalytic case studies of Freud. 
um, revealing a non-binary conception of gender and sexuality that actually traverses Freud's oeuvre. And it's a certain close reading of Freud. In the 1880s, Freud became fascinated with the case of a woman who interrupted her own speech by making strange bird-like noises with her tongue. So Martyr looks at this scene of fixation of the tongue to detect a countercurrent to, to how Freud is often read as like heteronormative views about gender and sexuality, that the work of language as stage in a hysterical body um, actually influenced uh, some of Freud's most obscure formations regarding how a woman comes into being, female sexuality, perversion, and fix fixation in his later writings. Um, feminism questioned and reinvented the notion of what a woman is, uh, or as Freud asked earlier, how it is that a woman comes to be, bringing this process to critical discussion. Um, so, and, and we it's a really fabulous reading about language and the body in his hysteria uh and it's and it and it which is fundamentally non-binary and that's why it's like it has a place in our book it's a kind of re-looking at freud and it takes us to the third essay uh which is uh uh it's darian's uh right contribution to the yeah book. darian leaders right. Mm -hmm. right on the gender question from freud to lacan and it's a ex extremely scholarly close reading of the uh, contributions of the 20s and 30s that bring an often overlooked debate to life where uh, Leader is recontextualizing the castration complex that had been accepted by all of Freud's circle and showing it how it had led to controversies. And one of the developments of that controversy was penis envy, uh, um, but it was not accepted, that, that idea, by all of Freud's circle. Uh, an outcome of this debate in Lacanian theory would be the transformation of the penis as organ into the phallus as symbol or signifier. Um. But it's a, I think it's, we, we see in the chapters a certain common feature uh, earlier on. Mania was uh, referring to Freud having already uh, presented the, the, the question, how does a, a woman come into be? Why does a woman... Uh, why is she supposed to end up loving a man and not uh, her mother? That is something that then uh, was revisited by Simone de Beauvoir when she asked the question, woman is, is, it becomes, well, if she has to become a woman, it's not a given. And, and, and we see there that there is an implicit dialogue, even we know that uh, Simone de Beauvoir took distance from psychoanalysis, a critique that was probably mm, addressed to the psychoanalysis uh, contemporary to her work uh, with with objections that we we share, uh, and uh, and we see that it's important to do this close reading to see that there is a, a we, we may be holding assumptions that are not uh, really uh, founded in, in in historical facts, and I think this is one of the great contributions of Leader by by, for instance, giving us material to then return to very recent priorizations in the Lacanian field, because, for instance, he will uh, revisit the sexuation formula that, in some readings, could perpetuate a normative paradigm of sexual difference and could end up reinforcing a binary. And, uh, and in this uh, the, the, uh, chapter by leader contribute uh, this informed perspective uh, on on how to maybe rethink not early contributions to 
complex uh, notions like uh, penis envy and so on, uh, but also much more recent uh, theoretical developments in the field of um, gender and sexuality. And that's how we find our fourth chapter in the collection that also continues looking at foundational psychoanalytic texts with uh, a sort of original reading to rediscover uh, the contribution that these uh, um, theorizations have and that are still relevant today. And, and this is how in chapter four, we have two analysts ask, what is genitality, Francis Alassa and Lacan's Lamela? And this is uh, the contribution of Jameson Webster and Marcus Coelen that again uh, would recontextualize uh, controversies of the half first of the 20th century, revisiting Sanders Ferenc's notion of Thalassa. And mm, they offer in this uh, chapter a very original concept of libido that is uh, thought in conjunction with Lacan's myth of the lamella, this originary undead libidinous inorganic organ of differentiation. Uh, and they managed to unpack the pre-Edipal origin of difference. Uh, they offer a juxtaposition that leads to a reassessment of the very controversial and very contested notion of the phallus. And, uh, and they see how we can maybe through their contribution have elements to revisit the notion of the phallus, not just in the psychoanalytic context, but also through the contributions by contemporary uh, feminist uh, theory and queer theory as well, and um, and and what we can see thanks to the contribution of Quellen and, and Webster is that uh, we could use the concept of the phallus in a way that will no longer be an outdated misogynistic relic, but that could acquire clinical relevance in the practice today. And, uh, and 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 they give us tools to rethink the notion of the phallus in relation to questions of sexual difference, uh, family romance, and the impasse that sexual relations uh, bring about. And and also addressing them in the analytic transference. To go back to Vanessa's questions about transference, we could maybe uh, rethink the concept of the phallus in connection with analytic transference. So maybe we then could, in conclusion to, to their article, start thinking productively in terms of uh, not so much the phallus, they work with the notion of agalma as this uh, uh, unremarkable object concealed, this uh, unappealing or unremarkable object concealed uh, beneath uh, an exterior that could be deceiving about its value. And so this kind of a gamma becomes fallen. We're talking about the thing that can fall in analysis. We were discussing earlier what the, the idea of transference, right? And so that that brings us into our so we we kind of it's a it's a dinner, you know, it's like all beautifully laid out, right? So this brings us into our next chapter that this this loss can have a signifying function, right? Um, and for psychoanalysis, identity, whether it's sexual, is uh, or otherwise, is aleatory. And it's constructed around an inaugural loss. And it can be traced to this kind of mythos that Jameson and uh, Webster and Collins' uh, uh, article discusses. 
a mythical ungendered moment when we fell from an undifferentiated completeness into a fractured and uh, sexuated reality. Um, this, this question of interpolation, right, to become interpolated into the symbolic order is what the next essay will touch on, how we're interpolated, boy or girl. Um, uh, Judith Butler famously developed the role of Althusser's notion of interpolation, quote, the material ritual practice of ideological recognition in everyday life in, her, in, in their discussion of the social construction of gender, of gender identities. Um, Althusser's idea underlines both the embodied material and the symbolic uh, ritual or linguistic components of interpolation. We are hailed, we're summoned as gendered subjects. Um, how can I claim my name? How am I claimed by it? How am I claimed by notions of identity that claim me, right? So this is in that Althusserian discussion and is uh, addressed in Genevieve Morel's, our next chapter, Undoing the Interpolation of Gender and the Ideologies of Sex. She returns to Althusser's theory of interpolation, um, adding the valence of the unconscious to Butler's analysis in light of the fact that the subject of ideology is also the, the psychoanalytic subject of the unconscious. She shows how gendering interpolations can be sometimes injurious when they're either normative or non-normative, um, and they are interpreted through unconscious fantasy. Uh, um, making use of her experience as a clinician, she discusses the how we can subjectively, how subjective transformation can undo the deleterious effect um, of slurs uh, uh, that can uh, that people have been interpolated by, and granting new possibilities of uh, identification beyond that. She really magnificently analyzes uh, Guillaume Gallien's 2013 film Me, Myself, and Mom, or in French Les Garçons et Guillaume à Table, which is a story of a a, a boy in an upper class family um, who's considered gay and he has to kind of come out as straight and it's it's very amusing and she does a, a beautiful a beautiful reading of it that I we I won't go into because it's worth it's the essay is fantastic um touching on this question of gender and interpolation in the social order also to to maybe harken back to what we were discussing before the potential of analysis uh, of uh, allowing uh, what Lacan describes as a little bit of freedom, which is still freedom, even though it may be just a little bit, of traversing one's own fantasy, that um, we, we are working in the collection on seeing how at times identity may not overlap with what we think identity is, how subjective truth may not correspond or the subjective experience to what is uh, constructed as uh, the identity of that subject. And in this case, uh, analyzed by Jean-Pierre Morel, is how uh, psychoanalysis could grant a space where uh, one could undo the identifications that led to a formation of identity through the projection of fantasy. And the um, next three chapters in the collection will... Uh, address the issue of fantasy, of course, uh, uh, from the psychoanalytic perspective, the notion of fantasy in psychoanalysis is very different from how a popular culture would consider fantasy. If we think of how Freud uh, systematized the notion of fantasy, he proposed it, uh, a sentence, a formula, when he uh, writes in A Child is Being Beaten, uh, he reduces the notion of fantasy to a single 
sentence of what Lacan would call an axiom, uh, something like a mathematical formula that is a primer that would give meaning to someone's history, would um, create a space for a temporality, would introduce the dimension of time, as well as uh, granting uh, a place for a subject in it. And, and uh, in fact, what we soon discover in an analytic cure, and this is uh, presented by Lacan, the fantasy is nothing by a veil. If we think of the wizard of Oz, behind the curtain, there's nothing. So it is a veil over a nothing that is at the origin of signification. Wait, wait, wait uh, Patricia. There's yes. a man behind the, There's a man behind the curtain, but he's not the great and powerful Oz. Let's just remember. Let's let's be true. There's to a the man, world. but but you cover the. But isn't that a, a disembodied voice? There's somebody talking. You you cover the the curtain, and and there is no. It's not a huge power as we construct right. it. It's just a, it's not a, 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 yeah, a wizard. He's a, he, it's a yeah, trickster. He's a jerk from Kansas. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. After the this outcome of the Super Bowl. In Philadelphia, we don't talk about cancer, but okay. So this is the, the second section of the book, uh, Queering, Psychoanalysis, Fantasy, Anthropology, and Libidinal Economy. Uh, this uh, second section uh, follows the part one, which is a genealogy of sex and gender, where uh, we, we explore uh, through fantasy, anthropology, and libidinal economy uh, how we create this this uh, uh, window, fantasy as a window that allows us to frame the world. And um, the first uh, chapter in this uh, second section is uh, by Eb Watson, um, and it's the role of fantasy in representations and practices of homosexuality, Com Tolvin, the Blackwater Lightship, and Edmund White, our young man. Uh, Mania, I'd let you, if you want to say a few words about that section. About that section? Um, so... There, Watson is looking at queer narratives of desire um, mm -hmm. and to look at the possibilities of fantasy beyond systems of normalization and uh, normativization and domination. So um, the, the function of fantasy has been elided in contemporary queer and critical theories of desire, except for some exceptions. And she, Watson is trying to show that the nothing of fantasy can function as actually a, pre a prerequisite for desire in order to stay on the side of life. So we can sometimes think of that nothing as something like um, in melancholia, but here it becomes productive. It becomes uh, a way of um, the nothing doesn't have to be melancholic or paranoiac, right? It, it can be an empty hole that, that propels us towards the world and to other subjects. Um, so it's a, it's a kind of extended through those, um, literary texts, there's a, those queer literary texts, there's an extended, uh, understanding of fantasy as an unconscious support that organizes subjective desire, um, and concomitant with the role it plays in, in culture. Um, uh, and, but, and in the essay, maybe the idea that it doesn't have to, uh, buttress political ideolo ideological or economic ends or programs or sexual mandates. Um, uh, so, uh, so, it, and, and she, she, she argues that um, in terms of fantasy, the way a fantasy of homosexuality has become, has been in, in 
in normative discourse, a kind of placeholder for excess, for otherness, for dis-ease and for loss. And she looks at these writers as ways of undoing that, those, that, that fixity. Mm-hmm. Uh, similarly, which is, uh, which is uh, well, yeah, that's what the next chapter does. Uh, yes, exactly. Ahead, this, uh, ex- exploring the, the the phantasmatic relevance of uh, the figure of the homosexual as a sort of nexus of cultural excess. The idea of uh, homosexuality in Western contemporary culture as a placeholder placeholder for excess, otherness, disease, loss. And I'm referring to the next chapter, that's Ray O'Neill, chapter seven. Yep. On Oscar Wilde. I'll let you, yes. Ray O'Neill talks about um, Oscar Wilde's comedy and art and tragedy in life in light of the unconscious transmission of trauma. Um, you know, Freud was born two years after Wilde. It's like just two worlds we don't often put together. Um, and mm-hmm. it, it, he's thinking through generational trauma in Wilde's life and what makes Wilde, right? Um, uh, O'Neill shows the primacy of unconscious repetition in Wilde's life, unearthing transgenerational, and it's quite interesting because there's a lot of history in the essay about the Wilde family. So transgenerational unconscious transmission of fantasy, desire, and anxiety, um, and exploring this in the relationship of repetition and transgression for Oscar Wilde. Um, and it, 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 it shows how um, historically overdetermined sexuality and filiation can be. Um, and it, and discuss it and, and also thinks about the question of the Oedipus structure in transmission, which would, takes us into our next chapter. Patricia? Yes, that would be chapter eight, eight which is uh, the chapter by Monique David Menard. Does the anthropology of kinship talk about sex? Uh, and and uh, we were talking about Oedipal structure, but also uh, we are talking implicitly about structures of kinship. And uh, here we are referring, making a reference to the work of the anthropologist Claude Lévi-Strauss. And uh, what uh, Monique David Menard does in, in her essay is uh, work with the question, is uh, asking whether foregrounding sexuality in psychoanalysis would have an equivalent in the anthropological analysis of the kinship structure. And um, she moves away from corporeal coordinates to symbolic coordinates and examines uh, the use of categories of sex and sexual difference in the field of anthropology. Uh, David Menard wonders whether anthropological inquiry provides other modalities of separation from the incestuous bond with an all-powerful maternal figure, in addition to what psychoanalysts call symbolic castration. This is a, a prescription for a good outcome in psychoanalysis. And uh, that's an exploration of uh, anthropological studies of uh, uh, menstruation, menopause, and infertility that overlap with psychoanalytic constructions about sexual difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, this is a, a, a very important uh, chapter in our collection uh, in which we, we can move from from the model proposed by psychoanalysis to think about uh, sexual difference to what we can learn from what is uh, 
uh, explore in the field of anthropology uh, that uh, could show us that uh, how important it is this uh, sort of cross-cultural approach. The, for instance, uh, we see that there are other cultures that have um, managed to come up with the ways of uh, um, incorporating in their social fabric non-binary gender identities. And here, for instance, we have the example of Native American two-spirit, an umbrella term for the combination of what is considered male and female energy, that there are other forms besides those proposed by Western culture to uh, construct what is considered natural or normal, and, and how it's important to, to add uh, a consideration of non-binary forms of construction, of uh, being in the world, um, and of forms of social organizations that could allow for other forms of expression of subjectivity. That, in a way, what they are showing is that even social organization is a form of fantasy, it's constructed, it is contingent, and, and that in that sense, we can use psychoanalytic tools, if we think of the theory of fantasy, the theory of subjectivity, as having the, an emancipatory potential to challenge gender oppression. That's how we move to the next chapter in the collection, that uh, we could say that the gender revolution had been brewing for several decades and has perhaps come to boiling point that psychoanalytic theory can perhaps help account for. And um, uh, this is how we come to the chapter by Kelly Oliver, From Fundamentalism to Forgiveness, Sex, Gender, Beyond Determinism or Voluntarism. And, and, uh, and in this chapter, Kelly Oliver voices and, uh, a, 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 a very sharp and uh, intelligent critique of the constant bombardment of uh, violent reactions that seem to have become uh, the norm. Um, maybe Manya, you want, want to, to add to, to this? Well, she's, she's wondering, it, it's called her, the chapter is From Fundamentalism to Forgiveness, Sex, Gender, Beyond Determinism or Volunteerism. Um, so she's thinking about our, the Trump moment and, uh, the, the idea that his base was devoted to the fact that he expressed himself in outrage and that c civility became suspicious because it was suddenly uh, framed as political, as if politics or let's say the symbolic was shown to be fraudulent uh, instead of shown to be the basis of civil society. Um, and the irony that was the intolerance was shared actually you know, by Trump's supporters and opponents. And in her essay, she draws on Kristeva's notion of abjection to make sense of our contemporary preoccupation with victimhood and outrage. Um, she examines and like exposes uh, the problematics of the fundamentalism of authenticity to diagnose uh, and offer ways out of our current impasse, uh, a moment in which the critical discussion and historical contextualization of identities and desires sometimes appear to be impossible. She takes on the culture wars and thinks about them um, and thinks about victimhood in its unassailable fortress. Um, yes, how, how somehow this uh, 
which is called fundamentalism of authenticity, yes. has become to mean a protection from difference. And maybe that's also uh, an issue addressed in the next chapter by Julie Flower McCannell, where she examines another iteration of our current disavowal of difference. Um, and she reminds us of a phrase by Lacan that uh, getting rid of sex marked the inaugural moment of capitalism. And via uh, Lacan's uh, recourse to group psychology, McCannell notes that Freud's observation that equality works by erasing difference, that everyone must have the same and be the same, that uh, there is a paradox in this universality, this universal equality that is based on one exception. We can have equality because there is one uh, exclusion, there is a one capital O that enjoys fully with no concern for his own absolute inequality in this regard with everyone else. So we have um, a, a very sharp critique of a form of a, a capitalism that uh, is anthropocentric. Uh, there is a male logic that uh, strives and er eradicates all traces of the feminine other logic. Right. McCannell calls that sexual indifference, right? Exactly. That's one answer. Right. We have only the part three, like part Sheila three Kilner. of this collection, being and becoming yeah, trans. Sheila. Sheila Kavanaugh's essay, so in part three, right? Being and becoming. Tiresias and the other sexual difference. Jacques Lacan and Bracha Edinger, right? It's an attempt to revisit Lacan's choice of a trans figure, Tiresias from classical myth, the blind seer who lived both as a man and a woman, and who Lacan elects as psychoanalysis patron saint. Um, the, this choice highlights an ethics of sexual difference that, that transcends originarily the gender binary, pointing to enjoyment beyond identification or beyond, beyond pleasure, responding to the question of jouissance. Um, and Kavanaugh elaborates the theoretical implications of Lacan adopting this trans-mythic figure, um, linking feminine sexuality, the other jouissance, to the psychoanalytic theory itself. She then puts this in like discussion with Bracha Edinger's idea of the matrixial, uh, which takes the uterus not as an organ, but metaphorically as a place of re relationality and difference, what Edinger imagines as a site alternative to the phallus. Um, this hybridization that Kavanaugh uh, works on transcends gender, sexual orientation, and sexual morphology, and has potentials for both feminist and trans discourse. Which is, yeah, I think the, one of the ethos of the book, this the, the, the rethinking psychoanalysis, gender, and sexuality with the contributions of trans discourses and practice that have radically question and redefine what it means to embody gender, uh, confirming as well uh, psychoanalytic findings about the imbrication of body image, language, and, language and psyche. And, uh, and here we see how in the collection we are returning to both the power and the radicality of the foundations of psychoanalysis, as well as recent theorizations in the field as a main to rethink 
what it means to have a sex body. Mm. And uh, of course, feminism has made use of psychoanalysis precisely because the body in question is always the body politic, affecting not only women's bodies, but other bodies as well. And, uh, and, and it's important maybe to overcome what uh, has been uh, a transphobic stance. And, and this is one of the contributions that the next chapter does, uh, Oren Gosland's chapter, Indifference, Feminism and Transgender in the Field of Fantasy, where Gosland claims that the trans body is a new feminist body participating in a new body politic and calls for a cooperation rather than a division between feminist and trans discourses. Um, that uh, for some feminists, the trans person's appeal for inclusion is taken as potentially obliterating women's rights to safety and stability, but underscoring the fragility of gender in order to traverse political and personal fantasy, Goslan returns us to the feminist founding credo of the personal is political and uh, shows uh, in his essay that the trans person for the trans person, the political is also personal and argues for a space of indifference that allows for the toleration of ambivalence, permitting us to hear the other's desires enigmatic and a position of what he calls an ethical indifference. And this is how we uh, move on to the next chapter uh, that is in dialogue uh, with what has been a, a discourse uh, partially constituted by psychoanalytic thinking, which is feminist thinking, and this is the contribution of Anjana Kana, uh, chapter 13, translation Geschlecht, that follows uh, the redact consideration of the term Geschlecht or gender, that as the redact Martin Heider, also asks what it means to think trans, to think across. And uh, Kana makes use of the construction this rhetorical method of criticism to reveal implicit assumptions, relational qualities of meaning, and textual tensions that are constitutive of any narrative, and uh, as well loses the constraints of what had become psychoanalytic ready-made, such as anatomist destiny or the woman does not exist. Right. And what's exciting also about that essay is that it's underlining the trans in translation and what's untranslatable. So it, mm -hmm. it, it goes back to a kind of resistance in language itself that's uh, useful to think about, um, especially as we're as we put these discourses in, in discussion. Yeah. And reminding us that psychoanalysis from the very inception has been a transnational movement, that uh, there is always a dynamic at play in psychoanalysis of a, a, a great interrelatedness uh, with sex, race, lineage, nation that are not only relevant for psychoanalysis, but also for the production of gender and the political implications of this construction. And following the political trajectory, in the next essay, Dina Al-Qasim discusses scenes of self-conduct in contemporary Iran, transnational subjectivities knitted on site. 
She discusses the emergent subjectivities between same-sex players and transsexuals under modern Iranian biopolitics, uh, using Laplanche and Foucault, uh, thinking about non-normative living in, a, in, in, in Iran today, and also thinking about the um, the trans located using Foucault to think about transsexual experience as a contemporary reworking of spirituality. Um, um, she then shows that transphobia and notions of sexual deviance are not limited to Western culture, but per pervade socially conservative and religious ideologies globally. So segregation and abjection confront not only non-binary expressions of gender and sexuality, but concern day-to-day -day politics, day-to-day -day public bathroom politics across the globe, which takes us into our next essay. Patricia? Mm -hmm. Yes, this is a, this is a, a critique of gender segregation and its concomitant threat of breakdown in meaning, and I'm talking about the next chapter, by Calvin Thomas, Lacanistas in the stalls, urinary segregation, transgender abjection, and the queerly ambulant death, where Calvin Thomas uncovers the psychic roots of the potentially murderous transphobic logic that permeates socially conservative ideology, that when we need to satisfy the most basic and urgent need and use a public restroom, we also use language or Lacan's symbolic order, and, and we are forced to make a choice of meaning either as a woman or as a man, and uh, this so-called laws of urinary segregation impose a distinction on otherwise identical doors, uh, that uh, also bring us echo, and this is the part of the uh, brilliant analysis of Calvin Thomas, of what Kristeva ascribes to the abject. The, that is something, a transgressive uh, instance, it's neither subject nor object, uh, and, and, and we'll explore in this uh, chapter who there's to be and to mean as both man and woman, and uh, exploring these notions of, of abjection, uh, Thomas argues that the cross-identified subject threatens bounded heteronormative notions of privacy by erasing hygienic lines between properly socialized sexualized bodies and the engendered bodily expressions that are deposited on the other side of any bathroom door. And that's a critical reading of the film V for Vendetta, the 2005 film written and produced by the Wachowski transistors, analyzing the transcultural imaginary as a queer, counter-normative or even terrorist celebration that takes distance from transphobic reading, imagining a less abject future. This uh, uh, idea of a future is uh, a projection that we see uh, uh, in the next chapter that help us understand the complex pro forces constructing our present, as well as the narratives that uh, uh, allow us to build the past to be able to send us onto this perspective of say, a tomorrow. And this is chapter 16, Daily Nobus, Becoming Being, Chance, Choice, and the Troubles of Transcursivity that pursues an original perspective by examining the socially conservative ideology that we have seen taken to task by the trans experience. And Novus situates the popularization of 
a certain trans experience as a symptom of contemporary neoliberal economic biopolitics. The next uh, chapter in the collection uh, also explores the, 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 the trust in, uh, in the notion of authenticity and, and questions this, this notion of authenticity in some trans narratives. Uh, for instance, when the trans narrative is uh, um, described as becoming what one has always been. And this is chapter 17. I don't know, maybe you, Maria, want to sum it up. The, um, the chapter yes. by <laughs> Elena Comey del Junco, Just Kidding, Valerie Solana's Camp, and Andrea Longshoot's female. Right, so, uh, so uh, she, Elena Comedia Junco explores the implications of Andrea Long Chu's reductio ad absurdum, quote unquote, everyone is female and everyone hates it. She lets, she kind of gives a comedic stride and goes after the truth behind the joke. Um, so instead of the edible narrative, she takes the shortcut, which is comedy, and she kind of um, uh, allows us through comedy to think about the problems of gender and the binary. Um, as Chu puts it, things can get worse. We are all men and women, cis and trans, female. And, and then she discusses the, astutely the success and fragility of this argumentation, as well as the perils and pitfalls of such a philosophical joke. Um, uh, Lacan's famous exhortation, don't give way on your desire, um, has often been misinterpreted as a moral injunction not to give way on one's jouissance. Uh, and uh, like a, and so this this chapter makes us think about those ideas in a new way that opens them up. Uh, it and yes, yes. Go ahead, go ahead. Uh -huh. Yeah, I was in the interest of time uh, yes. reaching the, the the last chapter in our collection uh, that um, is the beginning of maybe a second volume <laughs> because it's a, a chapter. That is questions that often um, in in the assessment of uh, uh, transgender experiences and embodiments uh, that clearly challenge the fixity of the binarity of sex, the narratives of an authentic gender, that uh, often what hasn't been examined is uh, that um, this tenants, the duality of sex, the nuclear family structured by the heterosexual couple, the primacy of sexual difference, that often these constructions have a, a repressed component and disavow component, which is um, the repression of the histories of colon coloniality that are uh, buttressing these constructions and the overriding a structural whiteness. And this is uh, the last chapter in our collection, a very uh, rich chapter by Yannick Kiems, uh, chapter 18, Transgender Quarrels and the Unspeakable Gender Whiteness of Psychoanalysis. This chapter rejects a conception of gender perceived as self-identification and proposes to address gender and race in parallel as to elaboration of embodied patterns of behavior. And uh, race is the issues of race embodiment that are implied in transition and uh, in this essay in necessarily interpolating and 
neglected intersection, and, and by this uh, I mean the inter neglected intersection of gender and race that is an intersection that is over-determined by the implicit normative whiteness. As concern for social justice have loomed larger in the last years, uh, we feel that such investigation is only beginning a larger set of inroads that we reserve, as I said earlier, for perhaps a second volume. But we concluded this collection with uh, this uh, very rich uh, contribution that um, explores uh, the, the, the exclusion uh, of race, and, and in that, by, by addressing this, it's, unsa it's, it's unsettling this, uh, the, our, our constructions about gender, sex, and sexual difference, and, and it's precisely addressing this uh, uh, intersection that is in the title of our book, Psychoanalysis, Gender, and Sexuality. I don't know if, if you want to, to add. Uh, that, uh, so we, we end with the possibility of another volume. Yes. <laughs> More. Hell yeah. <laughs> More effort, right? Well, thank you both for being here. I've read almost all of the essays and I can't recommend this book enough. It's so good. And it's clearly such a labor of love and desire. <laughs> and it's a really important contribution to the field. Fields. Thank you, Vanessa. So, well, we, we, we thank you and we wish to have ended, Vanessa, with a rich in the happy ending. Happy ending, our happy uh, massage like, ending. <laughs> yes, like in fairy tales comedy or massage parlor, an ending that maybe would ask for more if we gather the energy. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Drs. Patricia Garavici and Manya Steinkohler. Be sure to check out their new book, Psychoanalysis, Gender, and Sexualities, From Feminism to Trans, available from Rutledge. You can also visit Dr. Garavici's website, patriciagaravici.com. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode visit the main website, renderingunconscious.org. And now the song, There's Only One Libido, a collaboration I did with Pete Murphy from the album This Is Voyeurism, available at Bandcamp. Visit highbrowlowlife.bandcamp.com or petemurphy.bandcamp.com. All songs are free download or name your price. Enjoy. In gender, sex, and the sexual, Jean Laplanche differentiated gender, sex, and sexuality in the following way. Gender is plural. It is oftentimes seen 
as dual, as in masculine, feminine, but it is not so by nature. It is actually plural, existing on a continuum. Sex is dual. It is so by virtue of sexual reproduction and also by virtue of its human symbolization, which sets and freezes duality as presence, absence, or phallic, castrated. The sexual is multiple, polymorphous, It is the object of psychoanalysis. Sexuality and the unconscious may be seen as one and the same. Sexuality is subversive. Sexual identity may change over a person's lifetime or circumstances. Sexuality is fluid and does not have prescribed object, objective, or path. The drive doesn't work on the whole person or body, but rather is focused on fragments or individual activities. There is only one libido, and therefore there is no psychic representative of the opposition masculine, feminine, in the unconscious. The subject is inserted into her sexual nature. Sexuality precedes ego or identity. Any attempt to grasp onto identity may be seen as grappling with sexuality. Intrinsic sexual nature. In an attempt to categorize it, restrict it and contain it. Give it a limit in an effort to control it. Normalization is pathological. We see the erotic object through the obstacle, be it a door or glass, and this is voyeurism. 